Welcome. We're Kevin Smith and Mark Bleicher from Arate Incident Response. We're excited to share actual incident response cases, chat about IT security, and introduce you to the most influential players in the industry. With that, let's get moving. And thanks for joining this episode of Security Superpowers. Welcome to another episode of Security Superpowers. I'm Kevin Smith, joined today with Stephen Ramey. Hello, Stephen. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for having us back. You know, um, we, we've been rotating through a lot of great guests. Uh, today is no exception. Um, and I, it, just as a quick introduction, and then we're going to jump right into things. Um, we're doing this right smack dab in the middle of our day. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going to hustle through this. Um, he's a 20-year uh, uh, leader in the cybersecurity industry, held roles at General Dynamics and Fidelis. He led the USTDA effort for the creation of the Romanian National Cyber Innovation Center and has worked on some of the largest incidents in the world. We'd love to welcome one of Arate's very own superheroes, Mr. Mike Lotus. How you doing, Mike? Excellent, excellent. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Steve. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. I know that um, we are in what is characteristically known as our busy season. Um, why is that? Why is there um, such a huge a pump of, of uh, incidents in the, in the fall? You know, I think there's a, a number of different factors that impact that. One of them being uh, the European vacation schedules. And so a lot of bad actors in Europe, Eastern Europe and Russia take a large amount of time off over the summer. And when they come back end of September, they're really hot to try to uh, start working again. The other main factor, one of the other main factors, is really the holiday seasons. And what we found in the past was when we have, and this is globally, but when you have a lot of holidays and holiday weekends and people on vacations, that's when they like to strike because that's when they can operate undetected for long periods of time. So Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, those are really, really the busiest times. And a lot of the stuff we're seeing now is actually staging, testing, trying out new methodologies, new software packages, and then it's going to get extremely busy in November. So you're saying that the, like, this is like the beginning. So this is their beta test time. They're, they're just rolling out new strategies. Are you, are you saying that this happens like annually? Like do uh, these things kind of go through cycles, like just like a regular piece of software? Yeah, we've noticed that in the past, absolutely. That you'll see, you know, basically cycles or campaigns, and the campaigns will run, um, start to die off into the summer, and then you'll see a pickup again in November, just like we're starting to see a lot of uh, new riot cases now. And riot's been dormant for a while. So it, it absolutely has been a cycle historically. As one of the founding members of, of Arte, um, your career path is fascinating. Um, you've worked at some gigantic companies and some very well-respected companies in the cybersecurity um, realm. When did you get in, in, introduced to it and, and um, what interested you about it to, to pursue it? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting. I actually got my start working with databases and as a programmer. And then I moved to a small company called Trident Data Systems, 
and got brought on as a system administrator and network admin. And I'd never done either. But my boss at the time took a leap of faith and said, I think you can learn it. Go for it. And so he brought me in and basically challenged me to get over six certifications in six months and build an entire enterprise supporting an active government client. I mean, the uh, U.S. Air Force CERT Computer Emergency Response Team. And I did that. And so I was managing about 40 labs that were doing testing for most of the defensive software that the Air Force was planning on using or evaluating to use. And about a year into the engagement, so I was a contractor, uh, one of the government clients said, you know, we could really use an information security officer and it seems like you would be good at it. And I said, I've never done that. And he said, well, you can learn. <laughs> and so I became the ISO for our group and I actually wound up writing some of the policies and procedures for a number of very large entities in uh, the Air Force. Uh, the Air Force security stack I, has a little bit of my DNA in there and they're running that still. And I spent you know, about three or four years working with the Air Force, really learning as much as I could. It was probably the largest blessing I've had in terms of learning for my career. Uh, I had access to everything and some of the best and brightest minds on the planet. And I just was in learning mode for about five years. And that's, I mean, isn't that a key? I mean, you, to surround yourself with people that are just ultra focused and, and exceptional at their craft. Um, uh, you know, we could all be so lucky to experience that. And it, you know, the, the military I find has, uh, a number of paths when it relates to cybersecurity. Um, you having helped design and, and, um, as you state, put your DNA in there. What kept you ahead of the curve? Was it good company or what did you focus on any particular topic? You know, I mean, I think you touched on part of it, which was uh, military service. And, you know, I had a very traditional path for cybersecurity with the military. So I was in the army and I was a Green Beret, which is a very, very common path for cybersecurity folks. Uh, <laughs> I'm totally joking. Um, but I, I'm thinking, to, I'm trying to put the two to two together. <laughs> But, you know, I think one of the things that it, it teaches you is how to operate in very stressful conditions, which cybersecurity incident response is constant chaos. And the U.S. Special Forces is constant chaos. And being able to navigate at night with low loom through a swamp, well, if you can do that, then looking at a network diagram that someone whiteboarded is pretty easy. Um, so a lot of just the mindset that I got out of the military really helped a lot. Um, coupled with that, the no fear attitude that I brought into it and the, I'm okay with making mistakes. So I'm never afraid to make a mistake or say, I don't know. And when I was in that environment with the, the air force as a contractor, 
saying, I don't know, opened up so many doors for me because there were so many people there who had decades of experience. And these were old, long-term government employees who just wanted to be listened to and heard. And they did data dumps on me for days at a time. And I just soaked it all up. And so I think... That's a true gift. That's truly a gift. No, absolutely. And so I think... You know, finding something you're passionate about. The, my military service was something I truly enjoyed. And taking what you're good at, I was excellent at land navigation, and translating that somehow into the cyber world. Like one of the best network engineers I've ever met used to be a master plumber. And he said that being able to trace water pipes on a huge university campus and find a leak 10 buildings over he said after that network diagrams were simple <laughs> what what an unlikely source of of knowledge <laughs> absolutely and some of the best you know system administrators i know used to be mechanics and that troubleshooting skill that they learn as a mechanic translates directly into system and network administration and troubleshooting issues on the enterprise. And using network sensors is very similar to plugging a sensor into a car and getting a result back and then tracing it through and fixing the, the issue. It's, it's amazing when someone's good and passionate at their job that you can translate that passion and skill and aptitude into another profession like cybersecurity. You know, that, and that brings up another question to me, and that is, you know, what, I mean, you, you've kind of touched on them, troubleshooting, um, you know, the ability to troubleshoot, persistence, tenacity. What skills really put, you know, that, that are super relevant to cybersecurity as a whole? You know, there's, there's a lot of technical skills. So, you know, oh, People say, oh, we have to have a CISSP or you have to have this certification or a degree from this university. But I think in a lot of ways, having a flexible mindset and being adaptable to the situation around you is just as useful. And if, if you can whiteboard an enterprise and just pivot it slightly so it's not a network it's actually physical security that you're dealing with. And instead of protecting a system, put yourself there with your family. And then trace all the attack vectors in there and say, how am I going to keep my family safe? And if you can keep your family safe, then that system will be safe. If you know all sure. the different attack vectors for yourself, you're going to keep that system safe as well. So I think being able to visualize is a key component for cybersecurity, especially architects. You want to be able to visualize attack vectors. You want to be able to visualize the mitigants and the containment measures that are in place. You want to visualize the assets you're trying to protect and put layers of defense as well as defense in depth around those assets that you're protecting. Just can we take a just a second on that? <clears throat> sure. What's the right number of layers? I mean, you know, how many backup strategies do you need to have and how many layers of backups do you need? How many layers of firewalling do you need? Um, and, and from a general sense, is there a magic number? 
or, or is it very specific to the application? You know, I don't think there really is a magic number per se. I think a lot of it goes down to what you're trying to protect and the holistic security controls that you put in place. And so if you just look at it as concentric circles and each circle you draw in all the gozindas and the gozadas. Mm -hmm. As you go further and further out, you're going to have a lot more gozindas, gozadas. So you'll have like a single box and that box may have four ports allowed in and everything allowed out. But as you continue to go out, you're going to have more and more traffic. And so as you're looking at layered security, you look for, at least I look for, choke points where you can get bang for the buck. And if you're talking, how many backups do you need? Well, how secure is your backup mechanism? Is it in the cloud? Does it have some advanced ransomware protection so you can roll back if the backups are encrypted or corrupted? Roll back a day. And so I think you have to look at what is your operational risk model and what acceptable risk can you take or accept? And then look at what do we have to do to maintain that? So they used to talk about the number of nines of uptime. And you can kind of think of that in terms of the number of nines of security. So how many nines or what level of assurance do you need for your backups? Sure. Do you have completely offline backups? And that's the keys to the kingdom and everything you need. And you only need that once every six months and you can back it up to a hard drive and store it, that may be all you need for backups. Are you a real-time company that is dealing with transactions like the one of the stock exchanges, and you have to, in real time, have a level of assurance or redundancy because every microsecond, there are millions of transactions that you have to track and be able to access? So I think the, the business model is really part of it as well. We used to use uh, use cases. So we do, do uh, business use case modeling, data modeling, uh, network modeling, system modeling, and the use cases for each system, and break those down into smaller and smaller components until we could get to the security controls and mitigants necessary to protect those functions. And I think if you can do a risk assessment or an impact assessment based on use cases and don't, you know, including the business use case. So how are the businesses and the IT professionals using the system? That will help get you to the right number of systems because it could be different from a stock exchange or an auto shop. And, it, and that says everything, right? I mean, it's, it's risk, uh, right. um, appetite for risk, right? Yeah. So, you, you know, and I don't know, uh, and it seems like a, a great step one for any organization before they even engage in a security program um, is to know what what's, what their appetite for risk is. Because I think that that's probably the the most important guidestone in the conversation. It's it, you know what I mean. Like that's it doesn't seem like um, we can talk about the nines and you're absolutely right. You, you can, you can break it down into very specific levels of, uh, 
you know, effectiveness. But I think at the end of the day, um, it has to be appetite for risk that yeah. that's the driver every yeah. single time. It's, yeah. It's, it what's sense. at risk and what's the appetite for risk. Sure. And so if your if your business use case is centered solely on your IT assets and resources, and if you lose those, your business is down, then that's what's at risk, essentially everything. And you're going to have to have a fairly low appetite for risk. If you're in an auto shop and you basically use your computer to surf the web, you may have a fairly high appetite for risk. It's, yeah, wherever the center of their activity is. Yeah, I mean, if exactly. you're an auto mechanic, you're not even working on a computer most of the time. Right. So, I, you know, first of all, I want to be respectful of your time. I know, and, and this is all great information. I, I hope that you can agree uh, to come back again. <laughs> we want to talk to you again. Um, sure. But I do want to ask you kind of a, a closer here. And, and this is, um, it's probably a gigantic answer, but I, I'm, I'm willing to listen. Um, where do you see the future of, of cybersecurity? And I know that that's a huge question, but I think, let let me pare it down a little bit to how do you see threat actors evolving in the future? Um, Who who are their likely targets and and how are we going to continue our efforts to get ahead of the curve when it comes to, you know, mitigating the threat that these threat actors bring to the marketplace every day? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, one of the things when I look at the cycles and how people are evolving and you can see tools and techniques and their TTPs are really getting, you know, different and, uh, more sophisticated, but in a lot of ways they're the same because the defenses are getting more sophisticated as well. Um, when I've was first starting off doing commercial cybersecurity work. I was bringing in some experience that I'd had working on multi-level security, multi-level systems, but multi-level security, um, which was really taking security down to a further level than most folks did. It was down to the chipset. And when you think of security, all the way down. And that's where I was getting in those concentric circles can even be inside a system down to the chipset. It almost doesn't matter how they're evolving or what's changing or what they're coming after because you're looking at everything. And I don't mean that in terms of you have to know everything, but you know, on your laptop, you have one network connection. And when they come in or they try to access your um, system, there's only so many things they can do on the system to get access. There's only so many things they can do to escalate privilege. There's only so many ways they can inject themselves into a program. And even if the controls are getting more advanced and they're using a slightly different method, it's really the same thing. You know, it used to be we had mainframes and we had thin clients. And then everyone went to the PC. And then we went back and now we have cloud with thin clients. Um, It's all the same thing, 
really under the hood. It's just processing power, ones and zeros, some sort of operating system, some sort of interface, and the controls you put in place. It is, it, so I get it. <clears throat> um, now, if you're looking for an industry-specific thing that how are they going to come into the industry and what are we looking for, that is a huge answer. That really is. Yeah. Because, you know, as folks are moving into becoming more and more of a, a cloud-based culture, so like Office 365, and they're not storing their data on their systems anymore, they're storing it in the cloud, so Chromebooks. I think eventually it's going to be less about hacking your system. It's going to be more about hacking you. I think social mm -hmm. engineering and spear phishing, and we're already seeing a lot of that now, is going to be the wave of the future. So it used to be we were seeing a lot of zero-day attacks and nation-state attacks, and that was how they got access. Now we're seeing more and more it's the people. They're really just targeting mm -hmm. the people. And I think the defense is, is that like the executives? Okay. Are you referring to like executives and leadership? I'm referring you... to everybody. Everybody. Yeah. You, yeah. if you come in and you target and you get a secretary and they get access to that secretary's box, they can run privilege ex escalation or credential scraping software and just work their way back into the enterprise. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it, so I think it's going to be less about hacking the systems and it's going to be more about hacking people. And I think that's going to get more and more sophisticated. Right. And that's going to get even more complex as, I mean, we yeah. keep buying things. Right. <laughs> that makes it even easier for right. them to your, to us. Your refrigerator, your phones. I mean, we're everyone listening to this cast right now. How many calls a day are you getting for car warranties? Right. And how do you know that all of those are legitimate scammers who are trying to get you to buy a warranty versus someone who just wants your information. Right. And they're running a campaign to get information. That's, um, that's a great point. If you went through the trouble of calling us, <laughs> chances are that they right. knew there was a purpose for you to call us, but now it's, um, yeah, those, those, um, motivations are pretty nefarious. Yeah. I mean, I think what we're really seeing, you know, when computers started off, there was a model of trust. And so Unix was designed really with a model of trust, very weak passwords, um, trusted connections. Microsoft, model of trust. And over the last couple decades, and especially now with the ransomware and everything being in the news, we're starting to trust technology less and less and putting more and more security controls wrapped on the technology. And so I think it's evolving so that it's really going to be hacking the people and they're going to exploit the weakest link. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you just said it, the weakest link. And that's where, you know, even today I, you know, I had a conversation with a client um, where we are developing a very comprehensive security program um, assessment and we're going to roll out, you know, controls and, and, and do a deep dive on their, on their IT operations <clears throat> what was interesting is that they, in the, I, I try to send this message to every customer and that is, you know, the weakest firewall in your, in your network is your people. Um, 100%. And without their consent and knowledge, what, it, you know, it doesn't matter whether you spend, you know, a hundred dollars or a hundred million dollars on 
on technology, the weakest firewall in your entire organization are the people. And if they're not empowered with the right information to act and make decisions based on the current information that they have about an interaction or an engagement, there's a, you know, I, I mean, what, I don't even know what the statistics are. I'd love to know what it is, but there's a, let, let's call it a 50, 50, <laughs> there's yeah. a 50, 50 yeah. chance that, that they're going to make a decision. That's probably going to lead to uh, data exfiltration or an encryption attack or, you know, you know, something, you know, that's going to end up um, affecting their business. So that, that is such an interesting point. And I think that, you know, the future, when you sum it up, the future of, of cybersecurity is really going to be more people centric than technology centric. And, and it would exactly. make a exactly. lot of sense if it were. And so that's where I think that the, the technology coming down the pipe, that's going to be more readily adopted is going to be focused on securing the people like two factor authentication. Mm -hmm. So if someone's trying to access something, you're going to say, yeah, we're going to allow you to access, but we're going to make you go through another step just to make sure it's you. Right. And I think securing the people is really going to be the wave of the future. And that's what the bad actors are targeting now. Mike, thanks, man. This was a great conversation. I'm, I'm almost sad to cut it short, but I know that you have a, a pretty tight schedule today. Um, thank you for spending just the, the time that you have with us. Um, I learned a lot. I hope that our listeners learned a lot. Uh, promise that you'll come back. I will be back anytime. Awesome. I appreciate it. Listen, thanks again and have a great day. All right. You too. We hope you enjoyed today's episode with one of Airtay's founding members, Mike Lotus. And as always, a huge thank you to Colin Hanks and Severine Fortin for keeping this podcast moving forward. And to you, our listeners, for spending time with us today. Until next time, stay safe, stay smart, and we'll see you on the next episode of Security Superpowers.